Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word again. And we ask you to give us ears to hear it and hearts to receive it. And may you move in us so that we may do as you would have us to do. We ask this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. I cannot think of a better line with which to begin the season of Advent. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It is, a, it is a great line, and today we are going to be spending most of our time just thinking about that one line, the beginning of Isaiah chapter number 64. If Isaiah was anything at all, Isaiah was a great poet. Matter of fact, many scholars will say he may possibly be one of the greatest poets ever to live. He was an incredible poet. You, if, you, if you have a Bible that, that marks lines when, when the Bible is using, speaking in poetry, which is a significant portion of your Bible, if it shows it by scanning, lines, you'll find that Isaiah is almost entirely poetry. We think of him as a prophet, but if he was anything, he was a magnificent poet. And like any good poet, Isaiah is able to cram into a few words a whole host of ideas, meanings, viewpoints, emotions, longings, and all, doing this all while leaving the fullness, the wholeness of his intention somewhat achingly beyond our grasp. Just a little bit more than we, than we can quite fully get our arms around. And this is especially appropriate of sacred poetry for which the true intention and meaning is God himself, who is indeed always beyond our grasp. So into this opening line of Isaiah 64, which is the opening line of the chapter, the poem he's writing begins before this, but this opening line of chapter number 64 is packed the fears, the desperation, the barriers, the longings, the hopes and needs that Isaiah and his people feel in a rather difficult time in Israel's history. One of the first things that strikes me about this line, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, is the nature of the statement itself. It is something of a half or hidden request. I'm reminded of a child who longs for an object but is too afraid to ask directly for it because the weight of a final no would be too crushing to bear. So instead of, say, asking directly, could we get some ice cream? The child might say, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great? If we had ice cream right now. I'm not, not asking for it. It's probably not a good time for it. But just wouldn't it be great if we had some? Perhaps unsaid in this statement is the child's hopes, is that the child's hopes and dreams lie in at least the possibility 
of there being ice cream in his future. And if there is no ice cream in my future, please don't tell me. Because the idea of a future without ice cream is unbearable. So at least don't tell me no. Let me at least have the possibility of it being there. So too the indirect, indirect ask in, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, heightens, if you will, the desperation. It highlights the facts, the fact that all of Isaiah's future hopes lie in one event. An event too great, possibly too impossible to ask for. And a rejection, a no, would be a weight too crushing to bear. God himself rending heaven and coming down. His hopes for the future rest on that possibility, that impossibility, if you will. But time here is not limited in this statement to a present longing and a future hope. This line is, and the verses to follow are full of nostalgia. It recalls a time in the past when God did what was desired. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. This is a clear reference to God meeting Israel at Sinai. And so Isaiah is remembering that. He's reminding God of that. There is nostalgia here. Just like the child might say before giving his indirect request for ice cream. Remember that time a few months ago when we went to get ice cream? Wasn't that great? Wouldn't it be great if we could do that again? Maybe not now, you know, but yeah, wouldn't it be great? So Isaiah is saying, remember that time when you came down? You came down to the mountain and we were all scared to death and we fell on our faces and we wouldn't go near the mountain. You consumed the mountain with fire. There was lightning. There was a great storm. Remember that time? Wouldn't it be great if you could do that again? You've done it before. Remember that? Remember the good old days? But the exact purpose or manner or even motivation of this tearing and coming down is somewhat vague here. Or perhaps in this poem, we are meant to see multiple purposes and motivations for this event that is desired. How each of us initially sees or understands Isaiah's desire for the rending of heavens and God coming down might tell us a lot about ourselves. It might well be something of a, a biblical personality test. Some of us will see this desire, and rightfully so, as a hope for justice and judgment. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah, angered by the false worship, the oppression, the disobedience, the hypocrisy, the evil surrounding him in the world, just wants God to come and judge it all. To come and destroy the status quo. Destroy the evil. And here the picture is that 
of a mighty warrior tearing through the defenses thrown up against him to conquer his enemies. Can you do that, please, God? Then so the lion can be set in righteous indignation. It could also be heard as a desperate plea for mercy. Isaiah feeling the persecution, the oppression that the faithful feel from the unfaithful, feeling the overwhelming weight of the impending armies, the foreign armies that are coming to conquer Israel. He knows it's coming. Cries out for aid and rescue. The picture here might be that of a father tearing through the rubble of a collapsed building to get to his trapped child. To rescue. To bring mercy. To bring salvation. And so it might be a cry, not of righteous indignation, but of just a plea for help in time of need. It also might possibly be a cry for God, in some sense, to share in our anguish. The word rend here is, a, I think, a common word for tear. But one of the most common ways it is used in the Old Testament is in those moments of great grief and anguish when the Bible would say a person suddenly confronted with something terrible would tear his clothes and cover himself with ashes and sackcloth. And so the picture here could be of God tearing the garment of the heavens and descending to the ash heap of earth where Isaiah finds himself. In other words, it might be a cry that God would simply not be distant. I'm in anguish. Can you come to me in my anguish? Can I see you tear your garments as I have torn mine? Of course, these readings are not mutually exclusive, these understandings of this cry. Parents might imagine a situation in which you hear the cries of children coming from behind a closed door. And when you fling open the door, you find one of your children on top of the other, pounding him into submission. Now, let me hasten to say, I am not speaking from experience there. I am not casting aspersions upon my children. That's actually a situation I've never had to deal with. in my. So don't go to my children and say, when did you pound your sibling into submission? Okay, Just a... When a pastor gives illustrations about children, it is often assumed he is speaking of a specific experience. This is not. But you can imagine the situation. You fling open the door and there's one of your children just pounding the other into submission. Your opening of the door and entrance will will be to one child, the pounder, if you will. We will carry all the weight of impending doom and judgment. To the other child, the poundee, there will be a great relief and promise of salvation as you enter into the room. So the rending of the heavens and coming down may at once carry all the great righteous indignation of a great warrior and all the tender love of a father who comes to rescue his children and to be with them in their anguish. All of these things are packed into one line of 
poetry. But the situation in Isaiah is more complex than our having one child beating another. Because we are at once, our Isaiah is at once in this poem, both the pounder and the poundee. It may be that the world around Isaiah has gone to war with God, throwing up ramparts against him. Or that civilization has collapsed or threatens to collapse around him, trapping him in rubble. But he is no innocent bystander. He has had a hand in building the ramparts and creating the rubble. We hear in verse 6, Isaiah including himself when he says, But we are all as one unclean. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The one who is unclean here seems to be a reference to a person who has a disease that makes him unclean under the law. A leper. We are all as lepers who must be outside the camp. The filthy rag, scholars almost universally agree from what I've seen, is actually a reference to a woman's menstrual garment or rag. Once again, a thing that was unclean and must be outside the camp. And note that it is our righteous acts, our righteous acts that are unclean, Isaiah says. It's not those moments in a moment of temptation where we slip and fall into sin. He says our righteous acts are like filthy rags, things that are unclean, things that must be outside the camp. In reading that verse, I am reminded of the, an uncomfortable statement by the Scottish preacher Horatius Bonar, who once said, We need forgiveness not only for our omissions of duty, but for our duties themselves. Forgiveness not only for our estrangement from God, but for our sins in returning to Him. Forgiveness not only for our prayerlessness, but for our prayers. Forgiveness not only for our long rejection of Christ, but for our sins in coming to Him. Forgiveness not only for our unbelief, but for our faith. Forgiveness not only for our past enmity, but our present cold-hearted love. Forgiveness not only for the sins we bring to Christ, but for our way of bringing them. Forgiveness not only for the sins we carry to the altar of burnt offering and laid upon the bleeding sacrifice, but for our imperfect way of taking them, the impure motives that defile our service, and also for the sins mingling with our worship when standing within the veil in the sanctuary where the majesty of the Holy One has made His abode. Even our righteousness, even our best efforts are as filthy rags. So we are left with one last observation that we'll make today. There are many other observations we can make from this one line, but let me make one more observation. The rending of the heavens cannot be done from our side. The tearing through the barrier is not our work, cannot be done by us. If it will be done, if God will rend the heavens, it must be done from God's side. 
So the poet cries out in desperation, in indignation, in hope, in fear, and in some guilt and shame. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Of course, Isaiah's plea was answered, not in his day, not in the way probably he anticipated or even hoped or thought. But we are preparing to celebrate God's taking on flesh and dwelling among us. He did come down and he came down in judgment to destroy the ramparts and conquer the sin and the enemies, his enemies and ours. He came down in mercy to save his people from their enslavement to sin and death. He came down to experience our anguish, to be with us in the ash heap of this world, and to go outside the camp bearing our shame. In the Septuagint, the word for tear, rend, in Isaiah 64, is the same word that is used In Matthew, when at Jesus' death, the graves of the people in the city, the saints in the city, were opened and they came forth. So he indeed did tear open the heavens and come down. And then he tore open the grave and brought people forth. He has come. Yet we still find ourselves making the same plea as Isaiah made. Now, after he has torn the heavens and come down, asking him to do it again. Wearied by the injustice and sin in the world, the injustice and sin in our own hearts, we too cry out, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We cry out with nostalgia. Remember the time you did it before. Remember the time you came down, you died, you defeated death, you took our shame. Remember when you did that, oh, that you would do that again. And so in this time of Advent, we remember Isaiah's plea and his waiting. We wait with Isaiah. We wait with the same hope, with the same desperation. But we hope with greater promise than he did. For we know now more than he knows. We've seen more than he saw. More has happened. The the New Testament writers constantly say, we're in a better place. They looked forward and did not know what they were waiting for. We've seen it. And so we have. And yet we still wait because he has promised that he will indeed someday rend the heavens and come down again. It is a good prayer for us, this Advent, this line. The line has been running through my head all week. I hope it stays running through my head all Advent. That my plea, my cry, this Advent is that he would rend the heavens and come down. That he would bring justice and judgment. That he would bring mercy. That he would enter into my anguish, my shame, and bear it 
with me, for me. And that someday he would come and make all things new. We pray that. We long for it. We hope for it. And we can keep going because he has promised that it will happen. It has happened and will happen again. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.